I've been a touring comic for 15 years. So you know about the Montreal Comedy Festival? It's the largest comedy festival in the world. It took until 2019 to get me in there. And I was there with my agent. And I was like, so why did this take so long to get me in here? And she said, their response was, we just don't know where he would fit into this festival. The only way I got you in this time was because I told them Dave Chappelle and Ron White have you open for him them all the time like that you know made my blood boil so I'm like all right I'll show you where I fucking fit in I go out and murder my seven minutes I get a standing ovation and I come off stage and a big time big wig of the festival comes up to me pats me on the head and says you're so courageous and I all but like punched him in the face. I, I was so livid. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. All right, welcome to Chris Whiteout Living It. This is where we talk to experts in the experience of being human today. We have Josh Blue, who is most assuredly an expert in a variety of different things. He would, he and I were just talking about before we came on that we were both on the 2004 Paralympic team to Athens, which he said that we had a three-hour, we'll, we'll talk about this. Our trip home was, was adventuresome, to say the least. He won in 2006, was the last comic standing, has millions of views on YouTube, which is pretty amazing. Go check him out. He is absolutely hysterically funny. Travels around doing comedy throughout the world. Has spent time, eight hours, I believe, in, in an animal, locked in an animal cage next to a gorilla. So we'll have to get to that one because that sounds kind of interesting to me. I, I don't think I've talked to anybody who has had quite that same experience. Josh, thanks so much for joining us and welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey, this is this is really great. I've got to figure out first of all, has comedy always been your thing? Like like from the time you were a little kid? Yeah, I've always just been a funny person. Um, obviously, when you're a kid, you don't know that you can make a career out of that. You know, I, obviously, I saw other, I saw comedians, but I didn't like equate that to me as a kid. But then when I got to college. Uh, I just found stand-up in college and, and gave it a whirl and uh, pretty much been doing stand-up my whole adult life. I, I've done stand-up, I think, or not stand-up. I've done open mic night like five times. And, and it was one of the most nerve-wracking things that I've ever done. I mean, I remember the last time that I did it, I showed up at the place and there was a whole big line and some guy looked at, at my part of the line and was like, uh, you guys aren't even going to get in. And it seemed like everybody knew each other. And I was on the outside and I'm like, uh, and, and then you get your three minutes, right? So your three minutes, that light comes on and you're waiting for the other light that says, hey, you're done. It was one of the most nerve wracking things I've experienced. Is, was, was that the experience that you had or, were, or was it a different experience for you? You know, my first time in a comedy club was definitely that uh, experience of nerve-wracking. Um, you know, felt like everybody knew each other already. And I'm the young guy with palsy. You know, nobody really gave me, uh, let's just say, the, 
I could tell he didn't have much uh, hope for me. <laughs> um, I remember the first time, so I was doing stand-up in college, like at the community center, and that was fine because it wasn't a comedy club setting. It was more like poetry and music, and then I just went up there and told stories. But I, my first time at a club was definitely walk in and, um, you know, uh, basically, the host was a, also a police officer, and uh, I didn't really, he didn't really talk to me at all before the show. Nobody really addressed me. And then, like, two minutes before he goes on, he comes up and goes, hey, what's your intro, you know? And, uh, and then he went on and did, like, ten minutes of, like, police jokes about hitting people with batons and shit and uh uh then he's like okay now it's time for our first comic he's a very special friend of mine and uh i went up there and was like i don't know that motherfucker <laughs> that was my first uh first thing i said on a big stage and uh it got a huge laugh and uh Never look back. Let's just say that much. Well, there's there's nothing more intoxicating than when people laugh, right? I mean, it's one of those, like, were you just hooked completely? Yeah, man, you're right. There is nothing like that. And um, I love I love when you can get a room full of complete strangers to laugh at the same thing. So there'd be an old woman laughing at the same thing a young black man's laughing at. You know, to me, that is like, the best way of building a connection with people is just showing them, you know, we're, basically we're all laughing at my dumbass, you know? Did, did you start with the palsy kind of thing with, I mean, the act that you have now, I mean, obviously you've refined it, but, but was that part of it in the beginning? Like you're just going to make fun of yourself? I didn't even really address it. I just talked about being a camp counselor and, living in Africa and stuff that I knew about. Um, I didn't even really want to talk about it. And then what I found is the more I was genuine and authentic voice talking about myself, the more it hit home with the audience. And mind you, nobody in the audience would ever have palsy, but they could relate to their own disability or whatever fashion that is. Is that a hard thing to do? I mean, because because I think in some ways we see like our our comic heroes, right? We look at the comic heroes and we're like, oh, okay. We do mimesis. We try to try to you know imitate our our heroes, but to find our unique voice and to, and to have that vulnerability, that seems like a bit more of a challenge. Was was that hard for you to develop those those jokes and figure out what was what was going to work and what you wanted to tell? So basically, um, it took me a little bit of time to really fully embrace talking shit about myself, but I'm a master of it, you know? I, I'm, I'm very happy to throw myself under the short bus for your entertainment. <laughs> you know, um, and the truth is, I'm very, I can be very harsh on myself on stage, but to me, it's tongue in cheek because 
most of the shit I say I can't do, I probably could do better than most people or, you know, um, you know what I mean? So I'm comfortable in making fun of myself. Basically, I, I take your preconceived idea of disability and feed it back to you in a way that makes me laugh. <laughs> Is that part of the reason why you do what you do to take that preconceived uh, idea of, of disability and, and turn it back on people? Is that part of the motivation? I mean, it has become that over the years. When I first started, I, you know, I just wanted to be a comic. I didn't, I didn't want to be a spokesperson for disability or I just wanted to be the best comic. I could be, and uh, it just took, it probably took a good almost decade for me to embrace it and go, you know what, it is okay to be a spokesperson for disability, and it is okay to talk about it, and it is, you know, if people want to take um, inspiration from you, that's not your fucking problem. So at one point you talk about, in one of your, one of your bits, you talk about your bracelet, your copper bracelet. Yeah. And you're like, okay, everybody asked me, is this, there you go, you got it on. <laughs> is this one of those healing bracelets? And, and something that you said totally struck, stuck with me was, you know, I'm going to, if it gets me better, I'm going to lose my gig. Like, and you get, you get a laugh, but that to me seems like it's a little bit more than just a punchline. I mean, it's kind of, in some ways, it's kind of the basis, isn't it, of your, of, of your comedy, of your profession. Yeah, I, I mean, I have such a dilemma with this issue or topic or whatever, because a lot of people say I'm a, a very good stand-up comic that have, happens to have cerebral palsy. Then the other side was like, I'm the palsy comic who that's what you talk about. But if you ever watch my show, you know, that what I'm saying is about palsy because it's coming from the perspective of a guy that has cerebral palsy. Uh, I'd much rather talk about, you know, being a Southern Belle or something, but, you know, this is just happens to be the body that I was put in, you know? Um, so it, it's, it's always been kind of a conundrum for me to pick apart, like, you know, would I still be as good as I am if I didn't have palsy? Excuse me, sir. All right. <laughs> the hecklers on stage are easy, man. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that's the easiest part of my day is doing stand-up. But it's funny. I mean, like we get like the Brian Cranston character on Seinfeld, right? Who is like, who's like, oh, I became, I became Jewish for the jokes, right? And, and yeah. I mean, it's kind no, of like it offends me as a comedian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and I think that there's a there's a part of that. Like we have to we have to do the story and figure out what our story is. What's our because because I think part of what you're talking about is that we have to like the struggling part is the part that's funny, right? And, and the struggling part in our lives, but then to, to assume that you're just the palsy, the palsy comic, 
it doesn't give you any credit because you've gone and perfected your craft too. It's the opposite. It, it, in fact, it's very offensive and pretty hurtful. Um, because, but, but here's the thing is if you only see me as the palsy comic, you're not watching my show. You know, you haven't seen it or you haven't, because uh, it's way deeper than just the palsy comic, you know? And I have jokes that aren't about palsy, but, you know, it's still coming from the perspective of the dude with palsies. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the, but how, how challenging in some ways is it, because this is in general, right, in creating your jokes, to make your jokes as universal as possible so that they're hitting, because you said that's the great part of the the old lady, the young black guy, you know, that, that are all laughing. Do you think about that when you're putting a joke together or you're like, this is funny? Yeah, I just, I just know what's funny. I don't ever go, hey, what's the black guy and the white lady gonna laugh at? <laughs> you know, I just say, oh, this is funny. And because laughing is an involuntary thing, right? Something funny, you just laugh, that's what comes out. You could be at a funeral and laugh your ass off because something funny happened or something funny was said. Um, you know, and that's the beauty of what I do is like, maybe you don't want to laugh, but I'm gonna get it out of you. No, that's the idea. And it's, and, and it is in some ways for you, I mean, I feel the same thing, right? I mean, it's like, am I the guy in the wheelchair or, or am I me? And I was reading one article, I think it was from People Magazine, and it said, he lives with cerebral palsy, cerebral palsy. And, and you're like, you're like, okay, does that mean he, he lives with, I mean, it's like, does he live with halitosis? Does he live with, you know, I mean, it can be, it can be so many things, but it seems like such a limiting, sometimes exactly. But it seems like such a limiting uh, perspective. How do, do you find that that's a challenge to kind of break people's perspective to get them to see the real comic or with the with the audiences to get it? I don't think I have trouble um, changing the perspective of audiences. Uh, if you're in my audience, you're going to come along on the ride. And if you don't laugh at my show, something's wrong with you. Um, <laughs> um, but where where it comes in is is uh, in the industry. So, um, I've been a touring comic for 15 years, selling out shows all over the world for that long, and uh, I have zero uh, zero hype on me. Like the industry just sees me as the palsy comic. Or um, uh, all right, so this story, this is what the one that like it really changed my my attitude on what i was trying to do in comedy so you know about the montreal comedy festival mm -hmm. yeah it's the largest comedy festival in the world and i won last comic in 2006 and i didn't get montreal till 2019. now Every single other comic on last comic standing got to Montreal, 
you know, got at least, you know, over that span of time. It took until 2019 to get me in there. And I was there with my agent. And I was like, so why did this take so long to get me in here? And she said, their response was, we just don't know where he would fit into this festival. And I was like, Ugh. so that like made my blood boil because I've been crushing shows for a long time now, like crushing these shows. And basically she was like, the only way I got you in this time was because I told them Dave Chappelle and Ron White have you open for him, them all the time. Like they asked for this dude to open for them. And they're like, oh, okay. I was like, okay, so that, you know, made my blood boil. So I'm like, all right, I'll show you where I fucking fit in. I'm going to show you, right? So now I got this chip on my shoulder. I'm going to show these people what they've been missing. And I did the um, William H. Macy Gala. So basically it was in a big theater. He was hosting and he introduces me. He's like, this is one of my favorite comics of the night. Please welcome Josh Blue. I go out and murder my seven minutes. Like, I get a standing ovation on seven minutes. I was like, that's where I fucking fit in. And I come off stage and a big time, big wig of the festival, old dude comes up to me, pats me on the head and says, you're so courageous. And I all but like punched him in the face. I, I was so livid. Like, did you not just see what I did? Nobody else got a standing ovation. Nobody else did what I did. And my set crushed it. And that's all he saw. So from that point on, I was like, all right, well, this obviously, they're not going to see me as a viable comedian they only see the arm or they only see the the gate they don't see what i'm crushing a, you know and to me it's like you never tell a fat comic that they talk too much about being fat or uh you know a little person about being little or a woman about being a woman but for whatever reason cerebral palsy that nope you just talk too much about that i'm like <laughs> So that story to this day still, I mean, gets me, gets my blood boiling. And uh, so basically anytime I'm about, about to go on stage for a big show, I think about that. I go, he patted you on your fucking head and I go and I murder it. But you also, you have the endorsement of Chappelle, of Ron White, of like, the guys that, I mean, like your peers, but the people who really know. Right. But then at the same time, not the people who are booking you necessarily, right? Right. I mean, I've opened for Chappelle over 50 times. I've, you know, I've been to his home. I, you know, Ron White had me as his opening comic for a solid year, uh, you know, traveling the country on his tour bus and airplane. And he would be like, 
you better stop getting standing ovations in front of me or you're not going to be working with me anymore. And needless to say, I'm not working for him anymore. So <laughs> take that as the compliment that it is. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I do. And that's the thing is like, I mean, I don't know, like you said, my peers, a ton of them have a lot of respect for what I do. I, uh, this is so weird because I'm not in LA or New York, so I never have done the scene there. So I kind of feel like I'm, uh, you know, uh, I just don't know. It's almost like you described your first time at an open mic. I go to these clubs and there's all these big name comics that don't know who I am because I'm just not there every night hanging out. They know my name. But anyway, I went to Ralphie May's funeral and um, at the, the funeral, three pretty big name comics came up and like kissed my hand and called me the king. I was like, what are you, oh, what? Like, and it was like three people came in separately and did that. Like, oh, the legend is here. And they, they kissed my hand. I was like, what is happening? And I remember the comic that I was sitting with at the table. He goes, who the fuck are you? Like, who? why are they kissing your hand like that? What was your answer? I was like, I have no idea why they're doing that. I really, I didn't. I, I mean, I just, I mean, it was like Jay Moore did it and like, uh, uh, a couple other pretty big like what is happening like so um, again and it's like uh, if we put me on a show with all these big name comics uh, I mean I've had a ton of like names be like I don't want to follow you like please don't make me follow Josh and because I'm not, that's my thing. I'll never pull a punch. You put me on a stage, you better earn your following me. <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's, so, so it's interesting. Do you think in some ways, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting because you talk about this dichotomy too, right? In your, in your act of like, like you're the, the guy on stage, but then getting there, you, you know, you talk about being looking like a homeless guy or somebody right. for a homeless guy, you get thrown in the drunk tank or those kinds of things. That, that to me is, is something that, that we all experience as well. Right. I mean, it's like, you're, you're, you're invisible until you're on stage and then people can't get enough of it. Yep. How do you, how do you reconcile those those two things? The idea of you being like this superstar to these people, and then the guys in Montreal going, "Yeah, we don't see where he fits." Like, how how does that? Right. How do you reconcile that dichotomy? Well, and then going on from that, and going outside and having people like, "Hey, here's a dollar, you bum!" Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with it? Is it? My, my girlfriend always wanted me to write something on that, like the duality of, of my life, because, I mean, 
like you said, I'm a rock star on stage. I get standing ovations and sell out shows everywhere. But then uh, I go on a date with her and they're like, is this your brother? It's so nice you're taking him out or, you know, or whatever it is. Like, and, it, and it's like, it, it is such a weird mindfuck, I'll tell you. <laughs> but it just plays into the comedy. And I'm very fortunate in the fact that I can take those instances and bring them on stage and make them funny and point them out and, and educate you or or perpetuate it, you know, either way. Do, do you think it changes things? I mean, to be able to do that and point it and flip it on stage, do you, do you think people go out going, you know, that next guy that I see with palsy, I'm not going to ask him if he's homeless? You know, I would hope so, but I would also almost think that it's on a level where you don't even, maybe you think about it, but but it's just in your consciousness now. And the next person you see, uh, you know, even, uh, yeah, as you know, so many different disabilities, but you see you in a wheelchair and you're not like, hey, hi, how are you? You know, like, I was fine until you fucking came along. Like, you're talking about being a touring comic. What's wh what exactly is a touring comic? Like what what does your year look like as a touring comic? I mean, is this pre-COVID or good point, exactly. I mean, let's let's go back to pre-COVID because COVID is a bit of a crazy time, right? So pre-COVID, I was doing 200 shows a year on the road for like 15 years. So I am a road warrior. I do a lot of shows and um, and then, you know, that's being on a plane on average, like every four days or something. <laughs> all over. Yeah, I mean, all over the world, but mainly the States, but, um, you know, and then COVID hit and uh, kind of pulled the plug on that, which honestly was the best thing for me. Uh, I it just made me realize I didn't have to do 200 shows a year. Um, so now I'm a happier person because the road is boring as hell. I mean, maybe if you're with a band and you got some bandmates, but I'm a solo act, you know, so a lot of hotels by yourself and you got the whole day to wait around, which is weird because you think about like, you have a whole day that you can't really do too much because you don't want to exhaust yourself for the two shows that night. You know, so, uh, but now that COVID's, you know, well, now that we're loosening restrictions, uh, I've been back touring, but I don't think I'll ever go back to the way I was doing it before. Why were you doing 200 shows? Is that is that because you you need it to to make the money to do it to 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 fill the void? What's the why were you doing 200 shows? That's a good question, man. Uh, you know, at first after last comic, um, the mentality was like, uh, what if this is just a flash in the pan thing? You know, so, you know, make the money while it was there, but then it just never went away and I just kept going. And then um, the other part of it was 
I really do embrace the fact that I'm changing people's perspective on disability and I kind of feel obligated to do it. I don't mean, uh, obligated sounds rough. Like, I just feel like if I want to better the world, me doing what I do is a brilliant way of changing people's perspective. And it's not just through a lecture. You're laughing your ass off and you don't even realize you've changed your perspective. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I'm totally jealous of, of what you do. I mean, I do a lot of speaking. I'm in front of in front of a lot of groups and things like that. But I always wish that I could be funny. Like the times when I'm funny, I'm like, oh, this is this is like this is awesome. Like This is the moment. So I'm totally jealous of that. Do you like post COVID? Do you feel like you need you need that? Like you haven't had the connection to the audience like you get cut off from your life source? Yeah, well, and to add to the last part, uh, I'm thoroughly addicted to stand up. It's it's not like you said. There's no better, no better feeling than making people laugh. So yes, definitely, um, getting back on stage and getting that again feels amazing. Uh, and I honestly feel like the best comic I've ever been after that break. And just like, kind of like I said got some time to reflect but then also I feel like I'm putting more into my shows because I'm not doing as many yeah so so you're just hitting it hard when you're when you're doing it what's the uh what's your do you have favorite audiences like I mean because you started you came up kind of playing like the college circuit right yeah I did a bunch I mean comedy clubs are usually the best setting for stand-up I mean, a big theater can be fun, but it can also be a lot of work. Because, like, if you figure a comedy club has 350 people, uh, there's going to be one heckler. Whereas in a theater, you're going to have nine hecklers. <laughs> so, and honestly, I, I like heckling. Like, I dare you to heckle me. I will verbally tear you a new one. But when you're just babysitting drunk people, that's when it gets hard. Because they just never stop and they don't even know that they've lost. Yeah. yeah, right. You can smash them over the head as many times as you want. They're just not going to, I'm part of the show now. I'm helping. Okay. Have you had that experience? Have you had the experience where somebody's waiting for you out, outside after the show and those kinds of things or? Uh, I mean, I've only had that one time in my career, and it was it was a lady that was like, "I have a friend in a wheelchair, and I think it's very offensive what you were saying." I was like, "Well, maybe you should ask your friend in the wheelchair before you go defend them." I'm pretty sure they're on my side. Yeah, yeah, and you're the one who who looks ridiculous. It was, uh, yeah, I was doing a little bit of research, and they were talking about us. I was, I don't know what, I, you know, and it's one of those things you're doing research, right? And you're, I was, I was looking at like Simon Cowling, I guess at one point had given this kid with Down syndrome a hard time about his weight, and everybody like came crashing down on him. And I guess the, the people from like Special Olympics or whatever were like, "That's awesome. That's what you do to everybody. 
Like that's that's what you should do. Like treat them, treat them exactly the same. You 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 rip everybody else. Why should why should it be different? Right. No, I fully agree. And I mean, I think you knew that. And and I mean, I learned that at the Paralympics is like, there's nobody harsher on disabled people than disabled people. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of times uh, if people could hear the you know palsy locker room talk they would be so offended <laughs> that you know most most able bodyists are not ready to hear this shit you know which is true of any locker room though too right i mean it's like the most offensive things that you're going to hear so how how were you as a soccer player uh you know man i um <laughs> uh you know i love the game uh, I'm, I scored a lot of goals in practice. <laughs> That's good. Um, you know, the games, you know, I probably have 20 caps and maybe 13 goals over my career. Well, that's all right, though. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, my, the captain of our team had like 98 goals, though, but yeah. Um, but he had a much longer career than I did, but, and he's much better, but, uh, you know, I, those two things aside. Yeah. I think for the level of disability, uh, of palsy that I have, I'm a pretty damn good soccer player. Well, that's how you got into that's, that was the email that got you into the, onto the team, right? Yeah. It's yeah. It was one of those things where I just, because I didn't even know about Paralympics till after college. So, which I think is a bummer because I think if I had got in the program earlier, I would have a ton more goals, you know, and a lot more caps and, you know, but, you know, um, I only knew about Special Olympics and I knew that wasn't for me. <laughs> exactly. So, when you uh, when you're on the tour, you ever get a chance to play soccer? Does it ever does it ever come up? Oh sure, yeah, yeah, definitely. Lots of people uh, offer me uh, to come kick around with their team, or uh, you know, I got friends all over that play, so I'll usually have a a pair of cleats in the bag. I always travel with a ball, and I have one buddy that is in Columbus and he actually just keeps my shoes there. So when I'm there, he brings me my soccer shoes. <laughs> so you get a chance to do it. That's gotta be kind of a fun thing I'd imagine for people who have seen you on stage to then be able to play soccer with you. Have you had any of those experiences that you look back on and go, that was, that was a fun one. Oh uh, yeah, man. There was a, a goalie for like Manchester United or something in one of my audiences and he's like you want to take shots on me in the parking lot i was like yeah i do and this dude was unbelievably good i i was kicking it as hard as i could and he would just like rainbow dive across the park i don't he must have been on crack or something because he was like diving on asphalt to save my goal um but that was to me, one of those moments where like, dude, this dude is insane. He's so good. 
But what a cool story too, that you, this guy was in your audience and you're out there in the parking lot, like kicking, you know, kicking, trying to, trying to score on him. Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I assume that was in the UK. No, that was in uh, Atlanta. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So where, where, where do you, you know, I mean, the, the, the career arc for you was pretty compressed in some ways. I mean, by, by last comic, right. Where, where you sort of started and had like six years leading up to last comic and then kind of blew up. Right. Where does it, where does it go or where do you want it to go from here? Well, I mean, yes, yeah, so that's something big to address is like, you know, I hit a very high pinnacle with last comic right out of the gate. <laughs> I mean, that's a big thing to win as a 26 year old. Um, and I'm very fortunate in the fact that I was aware of that. I go, well, what's, what's after this? What do you do to beat this? And honestly, I just, uh, I've always wanted to do movies and TV, um, but some of that's come my way. But again, that's also the this industry that we're in only sees the disability. I mean, I've had people, somebody reach out to me one time. I was like, uh, we need, they needed a disabled role played. And they're like, we need Josh Blue or something like that. And, and the guy had some weird brittle bone disease. And I was like, well, does he also have cerebral palsy? <laughs> That's nothing like this. Yeah. Because I can't undo the palsy and pretend it's brittle, brittle bone disease. <laughs> Is that the hard part, like breaking into television, breaking into movies and not being not being typecast? And would you have to write your own in some way to be able to, to I do mean, it? there's some things in the works where people are writing me into scripts. And, and honestly, I've been in some movies and I've been in some TV stuff, but, um, you know, it's just me. <laughs> you know, I'm... I'm I'm the kind of character that you should write a script around. Don't try to make me fit into the script. I mean, and I guess that takes away from calling it acting, but but the more I can be myself and be funny and be natural as this character that's engaging, then the better your movie will be. <laughs> but that's always the hope as a comic, isn't it? Like you get your sitcom or you get your movie and you get kind of that guaranteed payday and exposure, right? Because it's one, you get paid, but then two, you get that exposure that then helps you get all the other gigs, right? Is that how it works? Yeah, and honestly, I mean, I obviously like getting paid, but that's really not my motivation in TV and stuff. I mean, it'd be great to get paid, but I just think like, there's another like disconnect. Like when I won last comic standing, I must have won that by millions and millions of votes, right? And NBC didn't take that momentum that I had and like at least have me as the neighbor or something in a sitcom. 
they could have parlayed what I was doing into bringing those followers with me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that's still that's still in a lot of ways the uphill battle to be able to to demonstrate that to them. Are you particularly good at the competition side of being a comic? Do you like that part? I do. I do. Um, I've always been. Uh, every competition that I've ever been in, I've, I think the lowest I got was second place. <laughs> so why is that? Why is what that I got second why, and didn't no, win? No, 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 no. Why do you I'm do? Just yeah, just yeah, why were you I second? Just, the uh, they cheated. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, no, but why do you do so well in the in the competition side? Do you think? You know, it's weird because I don't know that it's like the fact that it's a competition or I'm just a really good stand-up comic and I give it my all every performance. So I just happen to be the best one that's there, you know? So yeah. I don't even look at it like, I mean, I, it's weird, you know, making comedy a competition is kind of a weird thing to do because it's a subjective thing but um by that rationale i want to be the best comic in the room at all times and you're gonna have to fight me for the title basically uh you know like i said i mean when i was starting comedy here in denver you know i would open for these big name people and just fucking bury them like and no regrets like that's your bad dude you, your name's on the bill you should be able to follow this dude you know and like i mean i've had comics be like he can't open for me anymore like i don't want him on my show and i was like i take that as a compliment like okay well let me see i'm <laughs> i'm better and that was that was when i was coming up you know that was when i was opening you know yeah, and to me, it's like I strive at being the best in the room, and most nights I can say that I am. And it took me a long time to have the confidence to say that. Like, I think you know that too. Like, there's a difference between being cocky about what you do and being like aware of what you're doing and like going, Yeah, you actually are really good at this, and it's okay to say that. I, I remember when I first said, all right, dude, you're good at this. Then I, I got even better because I, I gave myself permission to be better. <laughs> what does perfecting your comedy look like? How do you how do you approach that? Well, that's the beautiful thing about stand-up is you will never perfect it. Sure. You'll never you'll never learn it all. Every time you think you understand something, it changes or it uh, morphs or something new comes along. Um, so to me, it's just about maintaining the level of my own standards. Like, I don't want to tell a shitty joke. I'm going to give you the best joke that I can make. And I'm going to give you an hour of that. Like, I have five hour specials out. You know, that's pretty prolific I'm, I'm 42 you know that's pretty prolific um 
uh, amount of material to write. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so so just if I understand it correctly, so every time you do a special, it's kind of like those jokes are done, right? Like so, like you do an hour long special, then you've got to come up with entirely new material. You don't want any crossover. How do you how do you come up with new material? Well, that was like what I said, is something will happen or something will um, be in my head. I've had things in my head since I was a little kid sometimes and, and it'll surface and be like, there's something there, but not yet. And then one day I'll just like say it on stage and then the right thing to say after it will follow it. Like I, I didn't prepare that, I don't know. Really? So it happens organically for you? very organic very um like i do my best writing on stage is basically so the new one the new one that i can use as an example is uh you know being disabled people often want to help me right which is um i'm a pretty independent guy but every once in a while i'll, I'll take your help with like liquids you know, hot liquids are my enemy. So, and then the person will go to help me and they'll spill the thing. And I'm like, well, I could have fucking done that. And now you took my independence too. So, so I had the, I could have fucking done that thing before I went on stage, but I didn't have the, and you took my independence as well. That was the organic thing that just came out on the stage. And that was the part that got the huge laugh. When you get off of stage, I mean, obviously it sounds like you remember this, but when you get off of the stage or, or do you record everything? I don't know. But do, are you trying to remember? You're like, okay, did, how, did I, how did I say that? What did I do? Or was it just you were in the moment then and you're going to have to be in the moment the next time? That, that just, uh, just really? hope, for the, hope it comes out again. So basically I just uh, say it two nights in a row. And, and basically I look at my, state, uh, my set as like, it's constantly in flux, right? So I'm working the old jokes out and the new jokes in and nothing is set in stone. Like every joke is malleable every night. So I just try to remember what really works and stick with that. But then the elements, I'll, I'll constantly try to switch it up or fit something new in or or even the order of my show, like, oh, let me do this joke later in the show and see if that has a bigger impact later. Or so it's like a giant chess game that I'm playing by myself in my own head. <laughs> that sounds incredibly gutsy. But I also put very little forethought into anything. <laughs> so it's just weird. like. I always say this, if I ever put some effort into this, I could be really good. Is there a conflict though, where it's like, if you put more effort into it, you could be really good. Or if you put more effort into it, you could take away what makes you good now. I mean, 
yeah i think i'm really good without putting the work in so i put the work in. <laughs> you'd be much better what's the what's the role of of the comedian i mean beyond like i mean obviously it's to make people laugh but uh but what's what do you see as the role being a comedian well, i really feel it's the last place of truth um you know, you go on stage and you say something that's painfully truthful. Um, like I always use Chris Rock as a as a example of just like saying these things that are so true that you're like, oh my god, I can't believe. Oh yeah, he's right. Okay, yeah, he's right. You know, uh, where it's. Uh, I just feel like it's the last place you can say stuff and not get ridiculed and and you know comics do get ridiculed but to me i've just found a way to walk the line where i say just enough to make you really think hard but not offensive enough for you to be like oh you know <laughs> is that a conscious conscious walking the line or is it something that you just kind of are are aware of just aware of, I don't know where the line is. The line is different every joke. Uh, the line moves, the line changes. Um, but I know when I've gone over it. How do you know when you've gone over it? Uh, they just don't, the whole audience doesn't laugh. Pockets of people will laugh I'm like, oh, all right, I offended some people, but to me, I just have so much more material that if I ever say something that you don't like, the next one's coming right behind it that's gonna bring you back on my side, you know? But it's it's still, I'd imagine that it is, that, that some of the, some of your efforts are based on like bumping up against that line, right? I mean, is that, is that when you're on your best, when you're trying to figure out how to, how to best bump up against that line and push it and make people a little uncomfortable and make them think at the same time. Yeah. But again, it's not like a conscious thought. It's just a, a thing that I, I feel the pulse of the room or because like I said, I write most of my stuff on stage and I'm feeling what you're giving back, you know? So I feed off of, Oh, they like that, that work. That's, try this you know are there those ones that scare you when you think let's try this oh no i don't know if i can try this one yeah i definitely have a joke that took me a long time to like say it repeatedly every night or like uh oh they're not gonna like this one but here it goes now is this one that i would have heard of in watching your stuff uh no, it's very new. I don't, I don't know if you're ready for it. I <laughs> don't know if I'm ready for it. <laughs> you're, you're checking out the audience here, making seeing yeah. it. I mean, I think you can handle it. I just don't know if your uh, audience is ready for it. And a nice talk show, you know? Yeah, well, I don't know. We're trying to be nice here, but, but also trying to ask some questions that hopefully are thought-provoking as well. Do you feel like you... Um, 
that like like sometimes that you get a more sympathetic crowd that you're that you're allowed to to push the limits a little bit more than possibly some other people are i don't know i don't think so because i think sympathy only goes so far right i mean you can be sympathetic but you get punched in the face two times. You're like, oh, I don't feel so sympathetic for that guy anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I feel like, again, it's like the idea of me being good in competitions. I'm just good at being a stand-up. So, I don't know that I'm getting your sympathy. I'm just getting, just saying the right thing to make you laugh, right? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds like that's that's one of the challenges sometimes is that that the competition actually helps demonstrate who you are to to the people who are who are unwilling to see it in some ways, if that makes sense. It's weird too, you know, having these conversations. This is not anything that I ever think of on my own. I'm not sitting here like, where's the line, or you know, uh, what's the sympathy level, you know. None of that is even on my radar. I just go do what I do. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that 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 makes sense. I mean, I guess that that is what you have to do. It's it's one of those that kind of that's kind of interesting. Just sort of looking at it from the outside and going, okay, you know, is he aware that he can get away with more stuff, or is he, or or is he not, or or how does that work? And. I mean, I'm definitely aware of that sort of thing of what I can get away with more or, um, but I think that's also just a product of being aware of that my whole life. So it's just ingrained into the comedy, you know? Well, you've been willing to do it. I did open with the idea of the, uh, of being in the cage, eight hours in the cage next to the gorilla. How, <laughs> how, how did this work? Why did this work? I guess you got to give us a little bit of backstory probably on that too. Sure. So my sophomore year of college, I went to Senegal, West Africa, uh, and I did an internship in a zoo in the capital city of Dakar. And uh, I was there for three months um, doing a black and white photography um, a bunch of amazing pictures and then I also just pretty much learned how to be a zookeeper and uh, over the process I became one of three people in the world that could pet this silverback gorilla it's a big 400 pound bastard and uh, just an amazing dude and somewhere along the way I got the idea that I wanted to put myself on display as an exhibit. And uh, I picked the day and my zookeeper buddies locked me in this cage. And- uh, You weren't in the cage with him though, were you? Or, or were the... I shared a wall of bars with him. Okay. So basically it was his other half of his cage. And, you know, there's a metal door in between it, the two cages, and you slide it over, clean it up, and then put the food in. And the, you know, so he gets half a cage each day. Well, I was on the other half, and uh, 
I don't know what I was thinking doing it, but uh, no shirt, no shoes, just shorts, long hair. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people hadn't seen a disabled white person in Senegal before. So if you take the palsy out of context and you put it in a cage and then the zookeepers are also perpetuating this, they're calling me the boo-boo monkey and they're explaining to the people that they had just uh, caught me in the mountains of the Congo. And uh, I didn't speak the whole time. I just uh, had been uh, studying primate behavior the whole time I was there. So just doing a lot of, lot of monkey shit, you know, just hopping around the cage. And the zoo had never been busier than the day that I was there. Uh, and it was before cell phones. So people must have been like leaving the zoo and be like, hey, you got to go to the zoo today. You got to see the booba monkey. And uh, people were bringing bananas and peanuts and throwing them to me. And it was like the best I ate the whole stay there. People just brought me fruit. And the gorilla was very jealous that I was getting all the goodies. I bet. I bet you, you could be in big trouble. He must have been mad at you. Yeah, he was throwing shit at me. and uh, uh, But I would I would like take a bite of the banana. I'd go over to the bars and give him a bite. And then I'd bite it again. And people like, what the fuck is he doing? But yeah, we were drinking out of the same water bottle. And people, uh, but I mean, that day to me really really changed my life to be honest with you it, it was such um i look at that moment in my life as the pivot point of like i was still in college and i had some confidence but um i didn't i still had a lot of worries about the palsy and you know uh you know being disabled you know, I have a lot of angst uh, but to me putting myself on display in such a manner like look at me you want to see this body here it is broken as you want it to be you know and to me it just really made me not afraid anymore of what other people thought of me i guess if i i don't know how to say it exactly but it just kind of broke the stigma in my head like all right and it's kind of cheesy but i've been saying like a day in the cage equals a life on stage so after that day in the cage stand up is easy i, I bet i bet does it i mean that's such a transformational moment that that day in the cage does it, and, and I mean, the profound way that you learn, right? I mean, you just learn things in absolute terms after, after that kind of a moment or that kind of an experience. Do you find that it creeps back? Does that, does that fear creep back? And do you have to think back on that time and go, hey, that's, that, that's the person that I want to be like stripped naked. I mean, you weren't naked, but you know, like, like, you know, figuratively speak. Yeah. Uh, you know, man, I think at each step of the way, there's a new level of stripping away or, or you know, like, 
or that Montreal festival thing. That was another pivot point in my head where I was like, okay, this is how they see me. I did my best show, the best show of the night. And this is how they still see me. So I'm not going to change their perspective of me. So, um, yeah, I think there are steps along the way that get you to the the new revelations and, and uh, changes in your own mind. Again, uh, uh, those if I had to think about, those are the two moments in my life where I really did a full turn in life and go, all right, now I can do, like the gorilla thing, I came out of that cage and go, I could die right now and know for a fact that nobody's ever done what I just did. Right. I've broke ground in the world uh, in a in a way that changed people. Because, you know, somebody else pointed this out to me. They like, can't imagine all the people that were at the zoo to this day are still going, remember that time we're at the zoo? And we saw that that, that guy, like whatever, the booboo monkey, what was that? Like, yeah, they're going to forget parts of, you know, they're like, did you, do you remember when we saw the tiger? You're like, oh, I think so. I think I remember that. Do you yes. remember when we saw the boo-boo monkey? Uh-huh. Yep, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Nobody's uh, forgetting I that one. Still have nightmares. Yep. Is Do you bring part of that on stage with you? Like that, that because that's, that's full commitment. I mean, I've definitely told it on stage, but I haven't really done it in my stand up so so like so so you i mean it was this transformational moment right this transformational moment when you're at the zoo and and you just you completely went for it i mean the went for it 400 pound gorilla you know being in the cage for eight hours like totally stripping yourself bare saying hey this is it uh is that is that what you do when you're on stage or is that what you're what you're striving for that same kind of commitment when you're on stage, the vulnerability, the, the, the honesty. I think so, but the fact of the matter is, when you do 200 shows a year, it kind of dulls that mentality. It's just another show. Yes, I'm putting my all into it when I'm there, but it's not like as profound because I got to do another one in an hour. You know, <laughs> um, if that makes. But also like. By that rationale, the audience doesn't know any of that. They just saw a killer show. But to me, it's like, oh, yeah, this is what I do for a living. <laughs> so I'm going to do it again. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, that's the hard part, isn't it? Doing 200 shows a year, having to, having to pace yourself kind of emotionally through that. Right. And I mean, people don't think it's that, uh, oh, you work two hours a day. I'm like, I like to see you do what I do in those two hours. It takes a lot of mental energy to talk by yourself for an hour and lead the whole thing, you know? What's it feel like to come off stage for you? Uh, yeah. A lot of energy, a lot of, uh, you know, just like with the palsy it's very expressive so if there's adrenaline in my body 
it shows in in my movements or like spasm kind of thing or yeah i mean not so bad but it's more like well i mean you've done stand-up or you've done speaking you know you come off you're like that was awesome that was uh you know that felt good that one felt good or the other side that one felt bad well yeah i mean some of it for me when i'm on stage and and when i first started it was almost like i couldn't i couldn't take questions afterwards i would do a speech and people ask questions and i was like look i just i just gave you everything that i have i'm like an empty vessel so I get the buildup and then, and then pretty soon thereafter, I get the crash, but some people go in the the opposite direction, right? Yeah. I mean, I found I got to drink like 40 beers to come down. You know? <laughs> no, not quite that many, but. I figured you were giving, giving us a little exaggeration for the sake of the story, but. Uh... Yeah. Probably like 32 more accurate have your uh have your soccer playing buddies ever ever uh been in the audience oh yeah definitely yeah yeah definitely i got guys that still come out to shows here and there uh but you know when we were at chilla vista at the olympic training center down there mm -hmm. uh i would do a show in in san diego or uh la jolla they have the La Jolla Comedy Store down there. So I would do a night. The coach would let us go. And a lot of different um, sports would show up. So it'd be track and field and every, archers. And I would just fill the, the comedy club with Olympic-level athlete. <laughs> that is awesome. So was this before or after Last Comic? Uh, both. Both. Really? Yep. Mm-hmm. And you were good enough beforehand and well-known enough that you could kind of say to these guys, hey, I'm going to be down there. Uh, can, you, can you book me for a night? Um, yeah, or else I would just get on and showcase night uh, beforehand where it'd be like, oh, there's six comics each doing 20 minutes. So before last comic, it was more like that. And then after that, I could have my own, own night. And your own night, is, is that an hour? Is that the way it works if you have your own night? Generally, a comedy show is 90 minutes. So they'll usually have three comics on the show like that. So mm -hmm. a host, a feature, and then the headliner. All right. Cool. Yeah. Well, this is this is absolutely awesome, man. I really appreciate you. I mean, it's just one of those things that I think comedy is is one of those things that we all we all sit there and we just absolutely love like what you guys are doing and but to understand some of how it works behind the scenes is is really cool because it's just it doesn't make sense to us we it makes sense like hey that's funny i'm gonna laugh and that's that's as simple as it is for the audience Oh, it's fun, man. I, lo I love doing it. I thoroughly do love doing it. So what are the best places for people to to find you and where can they find you sometime soon if they want to see you? Yeah, so uh, the easiest thing right now is probably just Amazon Prime. If you have Prime, you can watch my shows for free. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, joshblue.com. I'm back touring again, so I'm all over, all over the country. And then I'm on, you know, all the socials, just Josh Blue Comedy and, uh, you know, Instagram and all that shit. So, and there might be a TV thing, but I'm not allowed to be talking about it right now. But keep an eye out for some TV stuff. Okay, we'll, we'll keep an eye out. We don't want to. We don't want to push you too hard on that one. I mean, I'd love to have the scoop and everything, you know, but. Uh, well, I'd love to share it, but. I'm but sure you would. Check it. Just keep an eye on NBC. All right. Well, on NBC, actually. Okay. Sounds good. Well, we will definitely do that. Um, yeah, we should get you on. They should get you on the on the Paralympic coverage back, like what they did in, uh, in London in 2012. Yeah, that'd be fun. Do you? We I did a show in Athens. Were you not there? I don't think I was. I mean, it was. Uh, where did you do the show? Uh, in the in one of the dorms, like the oh, basement. Yeah. It was just for the U.S. delegation. I don't know if I was there. I don't. I don't think I was. I I totally missed out. Yeah, it was the. Uh, I just did a show for all the U.S. athletes. Well, we'll have to get more of that. And Josh, thanks for thanks for making time for us. Really appreciate you taking your time, and uh, look forward to seeing you in, in the fu- in the future in person. Now that we're able to drop our masks, and uh, yeah, thanks for thanks for making it happen, man. Definitely, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. All right, for all of you, thanks for joining us. You know, please please continue to follow us if you like what you've seen here. Uh, Tell your friends, like us, subscribe. You know, we're, we're available on, on all of the platforms on the, on the podcast platforms. And you can watch Josh and me if you tune into YouTube as well. So, so tell your friends and thanks a ton. We'll see you again on Chris Whitehall Living It. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Whitehall Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts, in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.